Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by, for the second time this year, one of my absolute favourite triathletes on the planet, Magnus Ditliv. It feels like 2022 has been the year of the new guard in triathlon, and no one really personifies that more than Magnus. He was one of the guys everyone thought was a real chance to win Kona and ended up being a massive player in how that race unfolded. He came second at the PTO US Open, one of the biggest races of the year just a few weeks before that, and then came third at the Ironman 70.3 World Champs. Magnus, what a year. Like After your Roth win where we talked to you last time, you've just had a, a crazy few months of big races and big performances and having the entire triathlon world talk about you. It, it must be uh, pretty surreal. Yeah, you know, starting off with the, like, I did my first Ironman in in Texas in the spring this year. I thought, okay, that went really well. And then we decided to do Roth and I, that ended up going completely nuts. And I thought, okay, this, that would be like hard to get. Like now I'm on the radar of everyone. And then we had these uh, three races coming up and it's just from the the race in Dallas, which I took some really positive uh, things with me going into Kona, which unfortunately didn't end up uh, as I was hoping. And then I'm really happy now to to bounce back at 70.3 Worlds. But as you say, it's just been surreal. If you told me uh, at the beginning of this year that I would have won Roth and third at World Championships in uh, 70.3 and also third in the PTO ranking. I would <laughs> I would thought you would be uh, crazy or something. I want to talk about particularly your Kona race, your Ironman World Championships race and, and then your Ironman 70.3 World Champs race. Last time we, we talked to you in detail about your training uh, and what you do and, 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 you know, what kind of, what kind of training you do. So if every, if everyone like hasn't listened to that, you can go back and, and listen to that episode with Magnus, where we, we talk way more in depth about training. We're not going to do that so much today. Today we're, we're going to unpack these races because Magnus really has had some, um, some crazy races. So I reckon we start with the world champs because it's, it's what everyone really cares about the most and particularly, <laughs> particularly Kona. And then we'll move into the 70.3 ones. So Kona Magnus, Kona was funny because so many people like leading into the race were talking about you as potentially the guy who could beat the Norwegians to, to the point where even the, the Norwegians themselves, like every time they would post on social media, they would be like posting a picture with you and being like, you know, is this the, the Ironman world champs podium? Yeah. Um, and everyone was picking you as the guy who was going to like shape the race and ride up to them and, and ride off the front of the race. Can you maybe talk to me about how that race unfolded for you? Um, maybe like, did the whole thing walk me through it yeah of course i think uh maybe we should start already from arriving at kona uh and yeah just the build up for me after dallas uh i took a lot of confidence because dallas was uh, as many people know maybe even warmer and also extremely humid so it was basically the perfect uh, test before kona uh, and i felt the body came uh, along after that race really fast and we traveled to Kona only a few days after after the race in Dallas and I had brought uh, my best friend uh, with me who's also very much into training and and all sorts of things like that so he was basically uh, shadowing me while I was training all the time making sure uh, even on my easy runs I always had 
some uh, hydration with me and just making life extremely easy for me. So if I think the, the lead up to the race uh, was basically, uh, yeah, we also talked about that. Then my coach uh, arrived uh, one week before the event and the lead up was just such a good experience for me. And I think we didn't place like a foot wrong, if you could say in, in that way. So when I towed the line in Kona uh, on race morning, I was extremely, like I knew the work I had been putting into this event and I was quite confident that I could perform on race day and I had been feeling really good. So uh, the swim, uh, it was actually, <laughs> it was quite weird. Uh, the starting procedure, I think, with the swim. So we are called out in the water 10 minutes uh, before the start and uh, in the, in between those 10 minutes where we are walking from the beach and then uh, lining up at the, the start line, we have to do a swim warm-up. Uh, and the start line is maybe 200 meters uh, away from the beach. So I just decided to basically just swim out to the start line uh, <laughs> uh, and not really swim a lot between because it would probably take a few minutes only to get there. And then I line up and it was still a little bit dark and I just felt that uh, everyone was gone. So it was really weird because there was such much, such a lot of space. Uh, normally when we line up uh, on the starting lines, there's, it's really packed. But this time it was, I really felt everyone had a lot of space and I could see I was close to some good swimmers. And the start, uh, yeah, it just... I didn't even, I don't think I was fighting with anyone or touching anyone. It was very, uh, really easy start for me. There was no fighting or anything. So I just, I think after maybe 300 meters, I got on the feet of someone that I just stayed behind uh, the whole swim and really felt, I could feel when we turned around at the, uh, where the boat is at the turnaround point that, uh, I could see the front group and they were not really separated from our group at that point even. So I knew I was I was uh, in a good spot on the swim. So I just decided to stay on, on the feet uh, the whole way and swim. It's probably my easiest uh, Ironman swim. Uh, both, uh, yeah, I only have two, so <laughs> it doesn't say that much, but it was a good uh, way to start the day. And then I get out of the water I'm told by some of the uh, people I know uh, spectating that I was approximately one minute and 20 uh, seconds to the front group, which I, uh, that was pretty much, yeah, I would say a perfect scenario for me. And I decided to hammer pretty quickly on the bike. Uh, there was one issue and that was that I had to overtake a group containing Patrick Lange and some other strong riders. Uh, so sorry runners uh, so I had to ride extremely hard to not pull them along up to the front group uh, and then I think when we hit Palani going up Palani which is maybe between 10 and 15 kilometers into the race I can sort of already see the back of the front group uh, and pretty quickly out on the Queen K I managed to to catch uh, the front group and I can see Christian and Gustav is there uh, so that was I actually caught the the front group pre, uh, faster than I we had expected uh, 
and then I decided to take a little bit of a like a break because it has been a, a quite hard search to to bridge to the front uh, and Florian is pulling at that time and it's some people are also taking turns up front and then suddenly I see that uh, Florian is receiving a penalty uh, which I <laughs> I saw it happen and it, it seemed uh, very weird at that time but I had also seen from the women's race that there were some weird penalties being given so we were like we had been talking about taking it very carefully and making sure I was staying at uh, yeah at the right distance and not taking any chances at, at that regard um, and so Florian gets the penalty and I was behind him uh, when he was pulling so uh, when he gets to the penalty tent he uh, pulls out to the side of the road and then suddenly I'm in the lead of that front group uh, and that's I think around maybe 10 kilometers before you turn left down to like the, what do you call it, Kauai High or something like that. Um, so I just decided to, I wouldn't, I had planned to sort of uh, attack the front group and uh, especially in the, the Norwegians going up and down Harvey. But then now that I was in the lead position, I just decided to like ride at a steady, not force anything, but more like steady, what my Ironman power would be if I should pace it like constantly. And then uh, my coach, I didn't even look back, but my coach uh, was standing exactly at that spot. And he said to me already then that there was a small gap to Christian, uh, which I hadn't seen. So I just uh, really tried to, <laughs> to ride hard all the way from that point and then going up to, to Harvey. Uh, and that was a huge uh, surge and I managed to get a small gap on both Christian and Gustav but they sort of close it at the the last uh, kilometers before the turnaround point uh, but I also knew that from like uh, from other races and in training the the places on a course where I'm actually riding the fastest like compared to other riders and athletes when I've been racing has been on the really fast section so I also had I saved some energy uh, for the downhill going down Harvey uh, uh, but the problem was that at the turnaround point there is the special uh, needs where you are allowed as a pro to hand in on race morning if you want some special fluids uh, on the bike course and then the idea is that the the volunteers hand you the special need bags uh, and I was entering the special need uh, aid station as the first guy in the group with me uh, Christian Gustav uh, and Max and Sam Laidlow uh, I think maybe Sam Laidlow was just be in front of me at that point and everyone of <laughs> in the group gets their special need bag except me uh, they don't have it ready for me when I, I get to <laughs> get to the aid station. So I had to click out of the pedals and basically turn around a little bit because it was very important that I got the special need back. Uh, so 
the idea was obviously that they are that it's handed to you while you are riding your bike, so you don't have to click out and yeah stop completely. But I figured I really needed it, uh, so I was basically just shouting at the volunteers to get my <laughs> get my bag as quickly as possible, but they couldn't really find it. Uh, so I almost had to go help finding it <laughs> with them. And then I spent maybe one minute at the side of the road before they find it for me. And that was really frustrating because it was at the time where I was planning to make a move on the downhill section. Uh, and then they find it and I get going again. So I have to use that move that I had planned to just bridge back up to the group. Uh, so I'm riding the downhill very fast and can see the guys coming closer and closer to me and then the first thing that happens when I get back to the back of the group is that a referee gives me a penalty for drafting. And I had basically been staying in the group for, I would say, less than two minutes. Uh, and then I get a drafting penalty. <laughs> so that was those two uh, incidents that really was frustrating for me. Uh, and I had never been given a penalty before. So I was... Uh, a bit like stunned uh, not really didn't really knew what <laughs> to do uh, and I asked him where I should serve it and he said at the next penalty sandwich would be around 130 kilometers and at that point we were maybe 110 k's into the ride uh, so I decided to uh, stay in the group until 130 k where the penalty sent uh, was supposed to be and then the plan was that I could save some energy going to the tent and then standing still for five minutes and then try to gain some time uh, on the way back by riding uh, yeah riding my pace on the way back and hopefully gain uh, some time back but then when I got to <laughs> when we got to the 130k where the penalty tent was supposed to be there was no penalty tent so I'm uh, asking the the ref comes up to the side of me and says that I uh, okay you can just uh, serve the penalty at the end of the bike ride and then that was I had to make a new plan uh, and it took me some time to adjust to that also so I was just staying in the group and not really at in the best spot mentally I would say uh, so I'm just like staying behind Christian and Gustav for most of the rest of the bike. Uh, but then with maybe 20K to go, I just decide to, <laughs> like, I might as well just take a turn in the front to see. Uh, and then I uh, go to the front and actually I, uh, I can see that I'm getting a gap, uh, which I didn't think. But uh, yeah, then I ride my pace to towards the, the penalty tent and, I think I managed to gain one and a half minutes or something uh, on the way back uh, on Christian, Gustav and Max. Uh, but yeah, then I have to sit for five minutes in the penalty tent uh, and just watching people go by. Uh, and then gets out of the penalty tent after five minutes of standing still in the road. Uh, it was basically 500 meters from T2. So I had already unclipped my... I like gotten out of the shoes and changes to to the running, and then I think I make a mistake of like trying to get 
I've, I felt at the time that it was important for me to, to get back into the race quite quickly, which is probably the most stupid thing you can do on, on Kona is to go out uh, harder than you had planned. So I think I was entering T2, maybe around ninth position, uh, maybe even lower, lower down. And I'm just going out like uh, 340 pace or something like that. And just pretty quickly, I managed to pass uh, a lot of the guys. Uh, and then going up, uh, yeah, I ran the alley drive uh, that way, uh, way too fast. And then on the top of Palani, I... I I, uh, I'm getting up to Sebi, uh, and I actually I had been running very much faster than him, him until that point. So I thought I would just, yeah, run away from him also. But he somehow he uh, he managed to stick to me, and after I've been pulling him for maybe two k's uh, on the first part of uh, Queen K, uh, I asked him because there was quite a big of headwind if we should maybe swap turns so that we take 1k each uh, and he was okay with that so that was that was quite a cool moment was that we were actually running from the top of Palani until the bottom of Energy Lab together uh, taking turns 1k at a time uh, that was pretty epic and we I think we managed to run ourselves into fifth and sixth position or something like that which yeah it was starting to to look pretty well but then i see the other guys turning around in energy lab uh, my hope has been had been that some of the guys in front maybe would blow up uh, but i saw that they were all looking really strong uh, and then going up uh, yeah going up energy lab it started getting really tough mentally because my plan was that all my hopes were that that uh, some of the people in front would start blowing up and they really didn't seem to do that, which uh, is quite unusual, actually. I think that all the top, uh, like no one really blew up from, from the front group. Uh, and then, yeah, going up Energy Lab and the way back to to Kona was just a really tough fight for me mentally. So I actually lose some places yeah, and end up uh, running home in eighth place. A few questions about that, Magnus. Yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, the, the drafting drafting in Ironman triathlon is really topical at the moment, isn't it, with what happened at the 70.3 World Champs, but mm. particularly in Kona. Kona was crazier. It's just a little bit forgotten about now. Were you drafting when you got that penalty? Uh, it's. I wouldn't say I was drafting, but I can't, like, maybe I might have entered the draft zone a few seconds but uh, for me it's uh, it has always been about intentions I think judges or referees should sometimes like there was no warnings or anything given to any of the athletes uh, that received penalties uh, and clearly my intention was not to draft uh, so I can't, maybe if I'm closing a gap from behind and riding faster than the group, I might have entered the draft zone for a few, like a few seconds or something, which I'm not even sure I did. But I would say if I'm getting a penalty, then there were some other, yeah, it's just, it was clearly not 
intentional and i think maybe a warning would have been nice to have if <laughs> because i wasn't aware that i was doing anything <laughs> wrong at that time and then with your race I've, i i did a podcast with max newman um who you obviously spent a lot of time with uh, throughout the race and and we're in eyesight for for the most part of the race mm. he talked about maybe your race tactics ruining your race as much as anything like maybe he thought that you could have gone a little bit uh easier to catch them at the start of the race and and maybe blew a few too or um you know used up a few too many matches out of the swim to when you first caught the group and then again with with obviously the the debacle that happened at the turnaround point would you change anything about your race and the way you rode it and and what happened at the special needs um looking back yeah, I heard uh, the things he said about the special need uh, situation, which, uh, of course, uh, I, wa- it, <laughs> I didn't plan to, like, it, he made it sound that I planned to click out of my pedals, but really the idea with the special need zone is that the volunteers hand it to you so that you don't have to stop. Uh, so that was what uh, everyone else <laughs> did. Uh and that was, uh, if I had no, known that I wouldn't be given the special need bags and had to stop, then I would probably have made a tactic where I wasn't uh, dependent on it. But since the strategy we made beforehand was really, it was basically half of my, like the nutrition I needed for the last uh, part of the bike course. So if I hadn't stopped and collected it myself, then I would have had I would have to collect uh, Gatorade from the aid stations, which is pretty difficult to like count calories on and make sure you get enough uh, and all sorts of things. So I don't think, I think for next year, I will probably try to make a strategy where I'm uh, independent of receiving the special need bags because yeah, I don't want to end up in a situation uh, like that again. Uh, And then with regards to my race tactics, I think, until the Harvey turnaround point, everything actually had been going uh, as planned. I felt really much in control and I was trying, like preparing for a search on the Harvey descent. Uh, maybe I rode too hard after I didn't get the special need back, uh, like to get back into the group. But the problem is once you are in the group, you have quite a big benefit of like uh all the uh vehicles around the group is sort of in championship races sometimes can be making a like you you just gain a lot from being in the group and it's a uh, really difficult to be riding on your own uh, compared to being in the group so i think it was important to get back into the group uh but yeah it's it's difficult to say what well, i think the like on the marathon, the reason for my struggling on the last part uh, could be I was riding too hard on the first uh, first part of the bike, but I would more say I think the the mental side of like you saw it also in the weekend with uh, Sam Long uh, when once you have been through it's like uh, something you feel is not fair it's extremely difficult to to get back 100% in the game uh, and then once i saw that people were not really coming back to me uh, as i thought uh, they would uh, i thought some of them would 
maybe blow up or, or start struggling at that point. And then I started struggling. And then I think it was a self, like, uh, yeah, just in making itself worse situation. So <laughs> I don't think I would change that much, actually. And then another big factor at, at the Ironman World Championships this year was bike position and technology. And Sam Laidlow sort of, um, he embodied that. Like he, he, he's never looked better on a bike and put a lot of time into, into his position and the equipment that he was using in the lead up to Kona and, and look how fast he rode. Like he didn't push crazy watts. He, he only averaged about 310 watts for the whole race, which yes, is high, but he rode 404. Mm. And there's plenty of people who have ridden 310 watts on that course and ridden 20 minutes slower than that. So that really has become a massive part of, of professional men's triathlon, um, long course triathlon at the moment. And Sam came onto the podcast leading into Kona and he spoke about yourself, Magnus, and he said, I've heard and I've talked to people who have told me how many hours Magnus is spending at the wind tunnel and focusing on his equipment and and I've got to go and do that. And so clearly, uh, like between the time he said that in the podcast and when he got to Kona, he did that. He went and spent a heap of time on it because his position changed a lot, quite a lot and he rode so much faster for the for the amount of power he was pushing out. And and you, you know, yourself as well, you, you guys were really sort of pushing the limits with aerodynamics at, at Kona. Um, and yeah, like pre- people are crediting you with that for, for the large part. So a couple of questions with that, how, how much time do you actually put into that Magnus? And like, is, is this sort of, um, you know, like, uh, I guess this idea that you're really pushing it, is, is that true? And then my second question is, you boys were all had stuff down your tops uh, at the World Championships for aerodynamics. How did that come about? Whose idea was that? How did how was it that sort of like ten of you knew about it? Were you talking to each other? Like, tell, talk, talk me through that story. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's. You could argue that I'm probably the guy in the peloton that is spending. <laughs> The most time on optimizing equipment. Uh, I have my own. Like I'm working very closely with that guy. That is, uh, he's an engineer and he's doing. He's probably the guy in the world that has done the most aero tests himself. Uh, and he's been working on optimizing the Danish four kilometer pursuit uh, track team, which won silver at the Olympics, I believe. So he's uh, plays a massive role in. Uh, my equipment and so you asked how much time I've spent <laughs> it's it's difficult to say I think I've been on uh, velodrome maybe 10 times this year uh, and then uh, two full days in the wind tunnel in Silverstone so it's it's quite a lot of uh, testing and it's it's just like on everything from position to aero bars to I worked a lot on the suit I'm riding uh, on optimizing that and the helmets and all sorts of things. So uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of things that goes into <laughs> into a fast performance for sure. And it's fun uh, to like I have all the the data from when we first started doing aero testing uh, and. I can see how my CDA has lowered throughout all the testing almost. And I think when I'm counting it up, it's around 40 watts or something I've saved from when I started. Uh, in I think it was just before the 
PTO championships in 2020 uh, until now. So <laughs> there's really a lot of stuff you can work on. And and then what I talked about the uh, the down the tops aerodynamics at Kona. Can you can you tell me all about that? Uh, yeah, I think it was actually a secret, but uh, I'm not sure it's, it's a secret anymore. As a lot of uh, pros did it. Uh, it's yeah, you would probably see some uh, pro tour riders doing it. Uh, having something on the stomach. Uh, it's also, I know some of the guys just had a bottle uh, in there for more hydration. So there is, there can be a, a potential arrow gain if you place it correctly. Uh, but it's not on every, like for aerodynamics, it's it's extremely individual. Uh, what is faster on someone and what is not. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah. I would recommend you to try it out. <laughs> Who started at Magnus and how did everyone like, how did the word get around? T- t- talk me through the story. Uh, I think I started it in Challenge Rock and I thought I would be the only one doing it in, in Kona, but uh, everyone <laughs> sort of did it there. So I was actually uh, quite surprised to see so many people doing it there as I didn't really, I hoped that it had been uh uh, the people didn't maybe notice it, but uh, and I had tried not to uh, put out too many images of me riding with it in in rock. But I think uh, those things they spread pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. Did had anyone talk to you about it, and have you talked to anyone about it after the race? Uh, I hadn't been talking to anyone about it after the race. No. no. Was it the Norwegians who caught onto it first, or did, did, do you like you do, do you have any idea? Yeah, I'm. I'm really not sure uh, who, how they, why they, if they saw me doing it or if they tested it themselves. But uh, they must have seen it somewhere. <laughs> it's really interesting. I'm talking to Olav uh, tomorrow, Magnus. So I'll, I'll ask him. I'm, yeah, I'm going to ask everyone until I get to the bottom of, of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I guess, like, let's go on to the seventy point three World Championships now. And I know it's a lot of effort, but. Do you think you can walk me through, you know, between Kona and and then crossing the line at the 70.3 World Championships? Yeah, I can try. So after Kona, I was, uh, yeah, I was not in a very good space men- like mentally. I, for me, everything after Roth has been on pretty much also like uh, from Texas on and until Kona has been, had been about Kona. Uh, Roth, we only... Like we saw the start list and we thought, okay, it's it it's an opportunity we don't want to miss racing against uh, Jan and racing against uh, Patrick and all all the German superstars. So that was actually we we didn't prepare like we didn't know I was racing Roth for for a lot of weeks. So, but it was always like focused on Kona and all the aero tests I did was focused on the Kona conditions and crosswinds and everything and all yeah, a lot of lab testing and I had been doing a lot of heat uh, prep and very specific work in a heat tent and all sorts of things uh, going into Kona so uh, when I crossed the line there and it was just a huge uh, disappointment for me also because I felt that I had been I was extremely well prepared and Everyone, it felt as if everyone thought I would be able to give the Norwegians a match, and then I I didn't manage to do that. So 
it took some days to where I actually thought I didn't like <laughs> I I didn't feel like racing uh, here in St George uh but then uh, I had the tickets so we just uh, went and there were a lot of other Danes uh, racing here so uh, I I traveled with them and sort of stayed with some of them and race day approached and I started training a bit again and actually the body came along uh, very fast like I think I was running uh, almost yeah actually I was running uh, one hour two days after the race which <laughs> I've never been able to do before uh, uh, after an Ironman before so that was quite uh, yeah my body just uh, yeah came along very fast so it wasn't that uh, that wasn't really a, a problem and I started training again a bit and we did some efforts uh, especially on the bike actually in in the climb here in St. George uh, Snow Canyon where I pushed some really good power actually and started feeling better and better and did like now I've been here in St. George this is my third time so I've done a lot of repeats up Snow Canyon and I could see that I was uh, riding quite a lot faster than ever before. So that kind of motivated me and pushed me in the right direction. I think that I saw, okay, the body is like, also because I had been doing so much Ironman training, I was maybe worried beforehand that I didn't have the top end or high end power or what you would say to be competitive in a 70.3, but it, it actually... It was sort of like the, I know it sounds stupid, but as if the body like super compensated on Kona or something like that. So I just felt really strong uh, in training after and going into the race. So pretty quickly I started feeling okay. Uh, after the disappointment had been in the body for a few days, I started getting uh, more and more motivated and trained with the other Danes here has just been really nice and relaxed atmosphere. I've stayed at a uh, very very nice homestay that has a 25 yard pool uh, in the back backyard so I have just been swimming a lot because it's just so easy uh, so yeah the lead off was just pretty like I had my girlfriend traveling from I hadn't seen her uh, in the time I was in Dallas and Kona so she traveled from Copenhagen to St. George so, so she's here now and yeah it was just uh, nice uh, spending some not being as focused as I was in Kona, I think. And then the race. How did the how did the race play out? So can you can you give us a race report, maybe like you did with Kona just before? Uh, yeah. So the big issue had been, or not the issue, but the main worry was uh, the weather. That when I first got to Saint George, it was uh, actually thirty degrees Celsius in the like in the afternoons, which was very nice. And then from one day to another, I just got extremely cold and started being around maybe three, four, five degrees in the morning uh, when we were going to race. Uh, and I've never raced in, in those conditions before. So that was, uh, yeah. Then we saw the woman racing and they put on all sorts of gloves and jackets and yeah i don't know uh, what they didn't put on and and then we had made a plan also to put on some more clothing not to freeze but then on race morning i felt it wasn't that bad actually i also think it was warmer on our our race day 
So I, when I hit transition in the morning, we just, yeah, I decided not to. I had a base layer underneath, uh, and yeah, it was, uh, and then some paper on the stomach to sort of block the wind. But I opted for no gloves or no shoe covers or anything. So, uh, and then the swim uh, started out in complete darkness, so couldn't see anything. Uh, I don't think anyone could. So it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty weird to start and. Uh, I basically couldn't see uh, the next buoy, uh, but I felt uh, once we turn around, like I felt I got a good start and uh, felt pretty comfortable in the water. And then halfway through the swim, I can see that there is sort of opening up a gap in front of me. And traditionally that has been like once the gap has opened up in the swim for me, it has been game over. Uh, but this time, actually, I managed uh, to uh, close the gap myself, which I'm really pleased with. So I swam really hard for maybe 200 meters to close the gap. Uh, and I didn't know what that group was that I was closing the gap to, which if, if, if it was the front group or the second group. But I could see that there was some, like all the favorites and top-seeded people, they had... Uh, uh, colored swim caps and I could see quite a lot of them in that group so I thought okay this might be actually a pretty good swim uh, then got out of the water and could see Gustav and Christian just uh, yeah basically with me which was yeah I was very happy with that and then I got onto the Mayan bike and I could see Aaron Royal was still changing and Ben Canute was also still changing so I knew I was basically in the front group and then I probably made the biggest <laughs> uh, mistake, transition made <laughs> mistake in my whole life. Uh, I think it was a combination of being very uh, happy with my swim and then having to put on uh, the paper uh, thing on my stomach to protect the wind. So there was some more like things you wouldn't normally do in a, in a transition that caused me to forget my helmet. Uh, so I take my bike and start running uh, without helmet on. Uh, and then someone screams. <laughs> it was actually uh, Frederick Funk that screams uh, to me that I'm missing my helmet. And then I take my left hand and <laughs> feels on the top of my head. And I can't really feel the helmet. So I just think, oh, my God. And I, it was actually before the dismount line. So... No, sorry, the, the mountain line, before the mountain line. Uh, so I'm just, I had to run back and put on my helmet and then <laughs> jump onto the bike uh, and cross, yeah, go onto the bike. So basically the perfect position uh, I was in had been not ruined. It was still an okay position. It was more like the, I would say now I was maybe 50 seconds behind the front which is around where I usually am. So it's sort of, instead of, uh, had I been in the front, I would probably have, have used some energy to try and attack the the race. Now I had to first close the, like, then I'm, I'm riding uh, the pace I'm riding when I'm bridging up to the front group. I feel I have quite a lot of experience in closing gaps to the front group. <laughs> so I'm, I knew that I would be able to close the gap. Uh, and then when I 
sort of right through uh, the field. I can see that Gustav is actually behind uh, a group of, I think, four people in front, which, uh, so I'm, I'm bridging the gap first to Gustav and I can see if we are maybe 20 seconds behind Christian, uh, Christian's group. And I, that was, I, I'm thinking if I should just, I didn't want to, like in Kona, I didn't want to just bring uh, Gustav up to the front. Uh, so I, I decided to sort of uh, stay in that group a little bit to see if how he was riding, uh, if he could close it himself, sort of make him do the work. But it became pretty clear to me that the front group was actually riding faster than uh, Gustav, and I could see that he was riding pretty hard. From like you can tell on from how people are sitting on the bike if they are working hard or if they are in control. And it felt as if he was uh, he was struggling a little bit, maybe. So I let him do some more work, and then. Uh, I can see that the, the gap is still increasing. Uh, so I decide to try and really put in a very big uh, search to make sure that he's not going with me when I'm trying to bridge up to the front uh, on a downhill section, actually. Uh, and I think pretty quickly I get a gap on him, uh, which was just, yeah, that was, I think that was quite a, a uh, decisive moment for the race because he was actually riding pretty well. I would say it didn't, he wasn't off at that time. So I think if I had just gone through and sort of stick to my 70.3 pace, he would have been able to follow me and then I would have pulled him up to the group and he probably would have been able to stay there for the rest of the bike ride. And then once you start running with him, you never, I think, I think he would have been able to pull out a quite uh, all right <laughs> run. Uh, so I think if I if I had just brought him to the front, the race would have been yeah would have looked quite differently. Uh, so I was very pleased that I that I saw we were a group now with me, Christian, uh, Miki, Ben, and Frederick Funk, and I. I could sort of, I looked back quite a lot of times and I could see that Gustav was basically just maybe, he was for a lot of, for a long period of time, he was maybe less than one minute behind us and I could just see him working. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, but Christian was really pushing the pace up front. I think it was clear that he was riding on some, <laughs> some, some Kona anger and that he really didn't want to start the run uh, with Gustav. Uh, and I also thought for myself that okay I'm in a group now with four other guys and I think Christian maybe if I'm running uh, up to the best of my ability then Christian might be the only one that is running faster than me uh, and he's working really hard now so he might even be a bit more tired than he usually is when we start running so I just decided to stay in the group until we hit Snow Canyon uh, and the pace was also just like it wouldn't make sense for me to try and get the others or contribute anything because Christian was riding so fast. Uh, it was really impressive to see actually. Uh, and then we hit Snow Canyon and I decided to put some, like I was, I was 
going into the race, I was, as in Kona, I was racing for the win. So I decided to try and see if I could shake things up and maybe Christian would be tired from all the work he's been doing in front. So I tried to see if I could create some separation in the group going up Snow Canyon. Uh, we were riding pretty fast, uh, but it was only uh, Miki uh, that got dropped, which uh, surprised me a little bit. Uh, and then just on the downhill, just tried to keep it steady, uh, not make sure not that uh, he came up again or anything. So we started the run and Christian didn't put on socks. So he just went by in transition and took a lot of time out of me there. Uh, and we started running. I felt pretty, felt pretty good, actually. Uh, and then... Very quickly, Ben came storming past me uh, like I've never seen before. And I could see that he was, because I could see Christian was maybe 10 to 15 seconds in front of me. And I could see that he was not uh, running as fast as he usually is. Normally, he would, if he has a good day, then it's just bye-bye and you'll never see him again. But this time, actually, we ran, he only ran a little bit faster than me going up the first uh, like the first four, four or five kilometers, that's steady uphill. But Ben was just really running fast. And he, I saw him close the gap to Christian and start, uh, yeah, putting him under pressure, which I thought was uh, very impressive uh, and also very brave. Uh, and I thought at that time that he would surely crack. Uh, he, have, he has not been running that well this year, so I thought he was going out too fast. Uh, and I actually thought that was a good thing for me. So I was quite, even though I was running in third place there, I was I was in a pretty, I also felt very much in control. So I was, I was just trying to uh, get the miles going uh, and hoping for either Ben to crack or one of them to sort of like they were attacking each other uh, all the time. So maybe one of them would blow up completely. Uh, but it proved that they just steadily uh, gained time on me, even though I felt I was running quite uh, quite okay on a very tough course. Uh, so I basically just ran in third place uh, yeah, the whole way. And uh, even though I think I, I didn't, like I split it very evenly, I would say, but they were, especially Christian gained some more. He just had another gear on the last downhill also. So, yeah, there was no chance for me in this race to really follow them. If you love this episode or the podcast in general, well, it's only here because of the support I get from some of the legends who listen to the show and have chosen to support it on Patreon. Signing up for my Patreon costs either $2 or $5 per week, and that money goes towards putting the time it takes into getting guests, recording episodes, and producing episodes. I put on average about 15 to 20 hours of work per week into the podcast. And so if you enjoy the show, want to be a part of the reason it can continue happening and uh, in a position to help the podcast become even better and, and bigger, then by signing up to Patreon, you are literally doing that. Once you sign up to Patreon, you get access to a weekly extra podcast I do called The Training Diaries, which is, is 90 minutes of triathlon training talk and heaps of laughs. It's sort of both a serious and lighthearted look at triathlon training in general. 
Your support also helps me get more big name guests on that you actually want to hear from and release additional weekly episodes instead of just the one every week because I can justify putting the time away from work and family and, and back into the podcast. So if you'd like to sign up and put your arm around me and, and the show, the link um, to click on to do so is in the description of this episode. And if you're one of the people who already does uh, support me on Patreon, then seriously, thank you so much. You're the reason everybody is listening today. And if you aren't yet, but you decide to, then seriously, thank you. And then I guess the next obvious question is is next year. So all of the big races are sort of done for, for 2022 and, you know, there's still a few more, but really your your eyes must be set on 2023 at this point. And, and I'm assuming that you're, you're thinking about the Ironman World Championships next year already because clearly we have Christian and Gustav who – their goals might be elsewhere with, with chasing Olympic gold. And, you know, you're probably, you know, like you said, you're number three in the world. They're, they're number one and two. And, and if it wasn't for those guys being in races, like I think your year could have even been different again. So going into 2023, are you, are you thinking like, that's my year to win the world championships? Like I'm going to, I'm going to win them next year. And like, is there anything going to change to make that happen? Or where, where's your mind at at the moment? Uh, so I think from racing Kona, it showed that it's, uh, people always say that Kona is special and, uh, and I've just sort of maybe been one of the guys thinking, yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. But when you race it, you really, for me, at least it really was a special uh, feeling and it really motivated me to come back, uh, next year. So I think that will be alongside with the PTO events that Kona and the PTO events will will be my number one uh, priority uh, for next year. Uh, it's always difficult to say that I want to like uh, <laughs> I'm, of course I'm racing for the win but it's not that I would go out and state everywhere that I'm here to win Kona next year. I think uh, some of the I believe Christian already is talking about coming back. So he will, of course, be extremely difficult to beat. And I think Gustav is maybe, yeah, we'll see. It wouldn't surprise me if they both race it. And I think I just want to go back and, and execute a race that if I live up to the ability I've shown two times before in all three disciplines this year uh, in Texas and Roth, then I think it's going to be uh, an extremely fun day out there. And actually, uh, the season for me is not quite over yet. So I'm aiming to do Cozumel in three weeks to uh, try to get an early qualification for Kona so that I have even more time next year to prepare uh, probably for the PTO and PTO events and Kona. And do you think that going forward is is everything just going to stay the same like have you and your coach just got things worked out like clearly this year has been a crazy year of improvement for you and becoming really one of the very best long course triathlete triathletes in the world in what seems like it's sort of been a short period of time but you know you have actually been doing this for a long time now even though it's like seems like a bit of an overnight success story have you guys just got it nailed and and nothing will really change. It will just be more of the same. Or are you guys sort of talking about like little modifications you might might be making in your in your training or 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 in any other areas to to take that even next step? Um, so I think we are always uh, searching for small improvements and areas to make 
uh, yeah, gains on. But I believe the main principles of what we are doing and how we are working is going to stay the same for sure. Uh, I'm, uh, I just turned 25 years old uh, two days ago. So, uh, and if you look at my actual training age, I only started uh, doing triathlon as I was, I think, 17 or 18. So I'm still extremely young from that perspective. So I think that there is some natural, like, uh, improvements to be made just by plugging plugging along and staying injury free and getting more and more yeah training in the legs thanks so much for for coming on magnus and and walking us through both of those races like pretty like i said in the intro um you're you're one of my absolute favorite triathletes on the planet right now and and i love the way you race and and i love the way that you're shaping so many races and i think the thing i love most about you is is the way you race makes people talk about you before the race. So like there wasn't an expert before Kona or the 70.3 world championships that weren't saying, you know, um, it's sort of like how Magnus rides and how he races is going to, you know, play, play a massive part in this race and dictate the race. And then you have people, you know, like Lionel and Sam Long and those guys who are thinking now like, well, we can't ride up to the, the front of the race anymore because we've got a guy in Magnus Ditliv who's, 90 seconds out of the out of the water behind the front group and now he does what we did except he's two minutes in front of us so now he gets up to the front group and and rides them off the front so we can no longer keep up like you you literally quite literally are changing long course triathlon a little bit for the for the men so yeah i'm, I'm a huge fan of the way you go about that and the way you're your aggressive racing is, is making races fun. And so that's why I asked those questions about like, would, would you do anything differently? Because I really love your mindset and, and I sort of hoped your answer was no. And that, and that maybe, you know, you just get a bit of luck on your side next year or in races in the future, but you keep racing in that really aggressive, like take the, grab the, grab the race by the balls mindset, because it's, um, it, it makes triathlon fun to, to watch and, and it's it's really nice to know that you have this guy who is going to be on a start line and not leave anything out there and and you know do what he can to to win the race and it just makes it fun. So thanks for doing that and thanks for thanks for making uh, long course triathlon fun for me this year to watch and I'm already looking forward to Kona next year because you're my pick. That's that's what I'm going to tell you early that I've uh, I've been telling everyone who will listen. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I'm honoured to hear that. Everyone, everyone who I've been talking to, I've just been saying, like, just watch. Magnus is the man to beat next year. And then everyone always comes back with, but what, a, what about Sam Laidlow? And I'm a massive fan of Sam Laidlow too. So I hope it's a, a Magnus Ditliv, Sam Laidlow, one and two in Kona next year. And that would be, uh, I think we race, he's probably, when you say that, <laughs> I have sort of made Sam Long and Lionel try to up their swim game. He's... Uh, probably or pretty certainly making me want to up my swim game as well because he's also he's just yeah front pack swimmer and then has an extremely strong bike so there is no in the way we people race at the moment you can't afford to have any weakness at all and that's really what makes it uh, extremely fun and exciting to race awesome mate and i just got one favor to ask of you before i let you go yeah next year leading into kona 
whatever it is, whatever the next, you know, bit of technology that you're ahead of the game on, can you <laughs> let me know? And I promise, I swear, I'll swear to secrecy that I won't tell anyone else, but I just want to know beforehand just so I can like watch the race and say, I knew about that. Okay. I have a, I have a lot of small, uh, even in Kona this year, I, I have some small things I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, we've been working on. So uh, that. That is okay. I can let you know one of them. <laughs> okay, I'll message you, and I'll I won't I won't tell anyone until after Kona in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deal. All right. Thanks, Magnus. Thanks again, mate. Have a enjoy the enjoy the rest of your time. It's a George. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. See you, mate. Talk to you. Bye.